of me podcast the power and community podcast brought to you by art of me i'm your host shonda and i'm back with another amazing artist we're about to get into the nitty-gritty uh, of a, a screenwriter a filmmaker and even a spoken word artist which really touched me because i was like i love spoken word so i'm excited to kind of uh travel back in the past uh with her and talk about that but then also focus on what she's focusing on today so welcome to the podcast tazba rose chavez <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, as she mentioned, I am, my name is Tosparos Chavez. I'm a citizen of the Bishop Paiute tribe, which is a tribe in rural California. And then I'm also San Carlos Apache and Navajo. So um, I am indigenous and um, I grew up on a reservation and I currently live in LA and I am a television writer, director and poet. And I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. You did my job for me, Taz, because I was going to say, go ahead and just go in a little bit deeper about who you are. So thank you so much for even yeah. just doing that. Um, yeah, you have a very unique perspective because of who you are culturally, who you are and who you grew up as. And so I'm excited because I'm not a part of your community. So I'm ready to be educated and just learn so much more about who you are. And I hope you all are listening in if you're not a part of this community, which so many of us are not. Um, let's open our ears and our eyes so that we can just connect um, with the things that we don't understand. So first question, you just talked about like where you're from and who you are. So I had like a really fun question starting off. I wanted to know if we could go back in the past and see 12 year old Tazba, what was she like? And if you could talk to her today, what would you tell her? Yeah, okay, 12 year old Tazba, I was, that's what's that, the seventh grade, like sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, so I was a basketball player. And I was on the drill team and I was on the dance team and I um, was also at that time still writing poems. I started writing poems much younger than that. And I think, um, yeah, I was just a part of a lot of team sports. I um, did good in school. Like I loved school. Um, and I think actually that's a time in my life where a lot of my leadership skills were being developed because I would be um, become a co-captain of this drill team that had a hundred girls on it. And um, so uh, there was a captain and then two co-captains and we sort of had like lieutenants. It was like the whole thing. And so, you know, part of my job was having to choreograph routines and to teach them and to, you know, keep a hundred girls in line. And, and I had a coach at that time that I think was very influential in teaching me um, sort of some pillars around like, leadership and teamwork. And so um, if I could go back and tell something to her, I think I would, I would just, I, I wish I could tell her that um, like in the future, all of the things that are making her insecure or making her feel different or othered are actually gonna be her superpower. I, I'm still stuck on the fact that it was a hundred girls that you <laughs> and were. 
and I'm from a small town. Like I'm from a really small town. Like the town I'm from is like 5,000 people, but this drill team program is something that generations of girls have gone through. doesn't matter what you are. Like we're all a part of it. It's like something you all aspire to. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was big. <laughs> it sounds cool though. I feel like, um, just even knowing that the town is small and it's like a rite of passage for everybody is pretty cool and unique to yeah. that space so I love that I can't imagine trying to direct 100 girls though 112 13 year old teens like that must have been crazy did you feel like you had did you have um when you said leadership skills did you feel like you had to learn um like that that balance between being like assertive and and not being too bossy and so oh yeah and I think that all of us who are in these leadership positions were learning that and I I think it was also sort of the testing ground of how not to be a leader as well as how to be one. And, you know, so there was definitely, and also we're all 12, 13, we're all hormonal, really discovering PMS for the first time. Like, um, and so definitely a lot of yelling and saying, shut up and like not doing, you know, you're just, you're just, you're 12 and 13, you're like a preteen. Um, but also I think even at that age, I understood that, um, you know, if you, there's a, if you approach people um, in a messed up way, you're going to get a messed up response. And if you approach people in a nice way, in a friendly way, you're probably going to get the result you want. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't always nice. <laughs> Won't lie. I was learning. <laughs> but you know what? Those skills help us as, as we grow up in the jobs that we take. And I know, I know that's helping you now as uh, in your own career to mm -hmm. be assertive, but also work with different personalities and people. Yes. But we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. I want to talk more about um, just you growing up. So can you repeat to all of us listening in the name of the tribe and the community that you came from? Just so we can, we need to hear it a couple times so that we can know that it exists and it's out there. And then I just want to talk to you about how does growing up there or just even knowing who you are reflect who you are as a creative today. Yeah, absolutely. So on my mother's side, we are Navajo. She's from the Navajo Nation. So she grew up in Arizona, New Mexico. So I spent a lot of time there. And then on my father's side were Paiute, Owens Valley Paiute and uh, San Carlos Apache. And so I grew up on the Bishop Paiute Reservation, which is in a small town called Bishop, California. And if you look it up, it's this beautiful place. It's in a valley. So there's mountains, there's rivers, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, and so, you know, for me and my dad's side of the family there, you know, we have been there forever. Uh, we were a tribe that was not displaced. So we were, we were there, we've been there for a very long time. Um, and I think for me, like my culture and my identity and kind of informing who I am, I think I've never not known who I am, which I think is a very, as I, as I get older and now I live in a city and I have lots of friends from all sorts of backgrounds, I realize how much of a privilege that is and, and how important that is that even if I have sort of other things that in my life I felt unsure of or insecure about or like whatever, the one thing that I never really had to question was like, where do I come from? And um, who am I? Like I grew up in a household that um, you know, we still practice our traditions and we have our culture intact. And I also had parents who were very unique as native people. Like my father, you know, was a former tribal chairman, which is like the equivalent of like the president of a nation because these reservations are 
sovereign nation nations, which mean they're sort of mini countries within the United States. And then my mom, um, she um, was an environmental journalist and a news editor, and both of my parents were activists. And so from a very young age, I was spending my spring breaks protesting nuclear test sites in Nevada. <laughs> so I had, a, I had a really great upbringing in that way of not only being around my culture, but also my parents were very active in the movement and the sovereignty of our people, which is, you know, our self right to self-determination. Yeah, I love that. I love it because I feel like even moving on to this next question that you seeing that is also kind of what inspired you to get into spoken word poetry, would you say? Can you talk more about like when you discovered that gift and like what it was like doing performance art in that way? Yeah. Okay. So I probably started writing poems when I was in the first grade and, um, you know, it's at that age where you're writing short stories in your class and you have to illustrate them. And I took those assignments really seriously. You know, they'd be like, write a, write a book about a dog or a robot. I'm like, okay. And I would laminate it with box tape and I would hole punch it and tie it together with yarn that I found from the, the hall closet. And so from a very early age, I really loved storytelling and I really loved writing. And my mom was a writer. And so, you know, my favorite sound to fall asleep to is the sound of keys typing. Um, so, you know, I was exposed very early to, oh, you can write for a living, even though she was doing journalism, which is a very different kind of writing. Um, and then and then in the second or third grade, third grade, um, I was kind of one of those kids that was tapped very early on as being a gifted writer. Um, I don't know how I became that way. I mean, I'm the youngest of four children. So I also think that those of us who are the youngest kind of get to watch and absorb a lot when people don't think we're watching. And in the third grade, I once a week was pulled out of my, uh, I think it's called a literature class at that age. Um, and I would walk over with another one of my friends who's still one of my best friends to this day. And we were these third graders and we walk over to the middle school and we go to an eighth grade poetry workshop with a bunch of 14 year olds. We were like eight. And so that class and that workshop was really the first time that I was exposed to sort of uh, technical poetry. You know, I was writing things like, oh, I feel this and like rhyming things here and there. But that was the first time I was challenged to um, apply, you know, rules to it or to give writing prompts. And that was sort of the thing that like really, really sparked me. And it was just what I did. It was, just, I was a kid, all my cousins, all my friends, I just, I was just the kid that wrote poems. Like if it was your birthday, I was probably giving you a poem framed like behind some glass. Like I, I, I was just that kid. But when I was about... 10 in the fifth grade um my parents had separated a little bit before that and my mom had um a new partner and he had some daughters who were older than me and one of his daughters was a slam poet and they lived in albuquerque new mexico which is a much bigger city than bishop and when i went to visit one time because my mom moved there and i stayed with my dad on the res and i went to visit and my mom took me to um i'll just call her my stepsister because i Still, you know, it just she she still is, even though our parents aren't together anymore. Um, she was a slam poet, and she was like a winning slam poet, and I had never seen her in that capacity. And I mean, she was the one that drops down to her knees and like full on is like just and and I and I was sitting, I remember sitting there at like age ten. I was just like, oh my gosh, you can do that with this. And so, you know, I went back to my small town. I kept writing these poems, and 
in um in high school I decided to to leave my hometown for a few years and go to high school in a bigger city in Albuquerque and I would make my mom and my older brother take me to open mics and to poetry events and I remember you know reading for the first time in some cafe near the college when I was like 14 and but I also was influenced a lot by um spoken word artists and hip-hop and and I I went to Deaf Poetry Jam in New York also when I was like 15. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is what I want to do. This is amazing. This, and so I was just hooked after that. And um so I I stopped trying to make a goal of being a published poet. I was like, I don't really, that's not really my thing. And so from then on, I only ever perform poetry. And then I always perform with music. So I work with musicians and producers and make these really beautiful um, backtracks. And people are like, oh, are you trying to be a rapper? I was like, I'm not a rapper. I'm I'm a poet and I like music. And so, um, which also connects me to film because the first film I ever made, I was 15 and it was this poem called, or this uh, film, short film called Composure. And it was this experimental poetic montage where there was music and there was my spoken word. It's the first time I ever recorded it and could hear it. And then I got addicted to that. And then I directed visuals to go with the poem. And, you know, I did this at like 14, 15. And I think a lot of it is you're just, you know, you're young and there's not, you're not really told what's good or bad or cool or not. You're just kind of like doing stuff. And, um, you know, funny enough, it's still sort of my style, it's still the style of poetry I do, it's still the style of filmmaking that I do. I love that because even when you said that you went to school and they moved you out of your class, I actually had that experience too when I was in school where they took me, I, I think I was in first grade and I got to, I didn't go all the way to eighth grade though, so you definitely, you know, took took off way further than I did, but I definitely went to the middle school and I was reading, like I was, the teacher would give me books to read to the older kids. And so maybe that was just a thing they were doing when we were uh, in school or something. They were like, yeah, we need to get these kids who are like reading, reading out of the class, but um, just transitioning into spoken word. I totally understand what you're saying. When you saw people doing it and you were like, I want to do that. I have to do that. Like, look at these people and look at how the audience reacts and look how like people are snapping and people are just like, you know, making noises to what the person is saying. And people are like having these emotional responses too. Um, and there's just a different type of energy that you just don't see anywhere else at, then at a slam. It's not even the same as theater. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a little bit similar, but there's still, um, and I, and I can even see you because I remember like the last probably like 15 years, there was this huge surge in spoken word poetry. People were traveling everywhere, like really doing it for a living. So I can even see you like thriving uh, during that time because people were obsessed. I feel like I caught on kind of late, but like <laughs> that's so cool to hear that you you really got to enjoy that community. And I love like when I when I hear you, I see, I can hear that you're like still passionate about it and that it is still sticking with you you said you still continue to do that and it actually reminds me of something that I when I was looking I was kind of stalking to kind of find out more about you <laughs> um I read that you were actually headed to law school at one point um you were going to study law and you were going to uh figure out what you needed to defend people on the reservations that you the reservation that you were a part of um which I love that 
I love that. I think, I mean, I think that's awesome. I don't even know how else to say that. I think that was a really awesome idea, but you ended up really feeling called to continue on with creativity. So was that an easy decision? And if so, what made it easy? But if it was hard, what made it hard for you to choose art over that? Yeah, I think, so it was hard in the sense that it took me a long time to come to that decision. I, you know, I graduated from um, UCLA in 2010 with an American Indian Studies degree because I did want to go do federal Indian law. There's a whole nother um, kind of law that is specific to uh, tribal law and policy that's different than the United States, like, law like it, and, and they have to interact with each other and so um I did that undergrad because I was so set on okay I'll go be a lawyer and I think what I was doing was I knew that I was an artist I knew that I was creative I knew that I had this outlet I knew I was a good writer but I also kind of thought that those were just hobbies or like things that I just did and I think when you come from a community um where you know you don't have a lot of money and there aren't a lot of resources and you know, you watch a parent, you know, count the bills at night and you, you're, you know, you're aware of those things as a kid, like you, even if they're not talking to you about it. And so I think for me, it was like, well, how can I go do something that will um, pay off that will give me a good job? Um, and also how can I get the land back? And I was like, well, that's, that's a lot. And also, you know, I can be kind of, you know, good at arguing. <laughs> so I'm going to go do that. And I really, I mean, I studied, I have studied for the LSAT. I've studied for um, the GMAT. I have studied for, um, what it, for what's the one for, there's one for like MBAs. I can't remember now. I've studied for all of these like grad school tests. And I just, you know, before I leapt full-time off into being like a writer full-time, I was studying for the LSAT and I was set up to take it. I was like full on, like on this path, had research law schools, had visited them. And I just had this moment and I was also working in the beauty care industry at the time. I was working for um, a brand as an educator. So I had a completely different life. I was like, you know, selling shampoo and convincing people why, you know, they should use this kind of skincare. I only share that because if you guys aren't on the path you think you're on, you can always change it. Um, and so I wake up at 5 a.m. Sorry for this LSAT, you know, fill out like applications. And I had a very specific moment and I was, 28 at the time. So like I graduated my undergrad at 23, it took me five years to really figure out like, what did I want to do? And I just kept on coming back to law school. And I was trying to try to treat law school as kind of like, well, I guess that's what I'll fall back on because I haven't really figured anything else out. And I know I can do that. And it's the responsible thing to do is what it was. So I had this night, I was living in Seattle and I pulled into my driveway after a long day and it was like, it's very dramatic. There was like rain on my windshield. There's like a porch light in the distance. And I just really had this epiphany. I just had this, this breakthrough of what I would regret in life. And I imagined myself, I had this, this mental image come to me where I'm like 80 years old and I'm sitting on a porch, I'm drinking my coffee. And I, I was really clear to me in that moment that um, that I wasn't going to regret not being a lawyer and I wasn't going to regret not being a businesswoman. I wasn't going to regret not getting an MFA in poetry because I also tried to do that and got rejected. Um, and so that was, that was hard too, but um, 
but the one thing that I thought, like when I'm 80 years old and I'm chilling on my porch, I'm drinking my coffee, like what am I going to regret not doing? And the only thing I could think of is I would really regret not having tried to be an artist full time and not trying to be a writer full time. Like I owed it to myself to try it because up until that point, I hadn't really just full time tried to make a living off of it. And so I told myself I was going to jump off this cliff. And at that time, you know, I, I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And like, so I thought that if I just, this is my last chance like to do that. And if I mess it up, then I only mess up my life because I'm making a major career change at this point. You know, I'm like, well, I'm messing up my life and I'm good. I can put it back together. I'll bag groceries if I have to, if I really blow it. And I was fine with that. You know, it's like, I come from a place where like all work is good work. All work is respectable work. And so I really was able to leave the corporate world of beauty care. And I um, moved back to LA and I had an opportunity to make a short film. And that short film is what sort of changed the trajectory of my career and my life. But it did take having that moment to say, I'm going to just go all in and it could go really bad, but you kind of have to be okay that it could be bad. Because I knew if I failed, I wasn't really going to fail. Like I, I was going to, I was fine picking up the pieces and doing something, but I would regret if I didn't at least try it's better to fail, try and fail than to like not try at all, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I want to hear like in a more practical way. So once you went to LA, you did the short film and that started off a trajectory mm-hmm. into your film career. What was that like practically? Like, did it yeah. just shoot off? <laughs> Were there dull moments? <laughs> oh, yeah. there are, okay, so the way, the practical way it happened is, I had uh, the company I was working for, a position opened in LA and everyone knew I was from California. I was always trying to get back to LA. So I called HR immediately. I was like, transfer me back to LA. And I was good at my job. So they were like, okay, no problem. So, but I told myself, I was like, okay, when I move back to LA, I'm going to give myself one more year with this company. But in that year, I'm going to figure out how to write full time. I had no idea what that would mean. Like I was, I going to be a journalist? Was I just going to like uh, get paid for doing poetry gigs, you know, because sometimes I'd be invited to like museums or these big events and you get paid to, to, to perform places. And so I was like, okay, well, little Zill spreadsheet. I was like, well, if I do this many performances and this is what I'm charging, like, then I can at least pay my rent. And if I write an article here and there, I can do this. And so I was just trying to like figure out what that was. Um, and so when I came back, um, I, in that first year, um, I had a friend of mine who I owe a lot to, my friend Chelsea, who recommended me, um, who put my name in the hat for um, this opportunity to write and direct a short film that would be funded by AT&T Hill Labs. And um, so I applied for it. I got in touch with them and I was selected as one of the writer directors. And I took a poem and I converted it into a script, which is what your name is in English. And that was a poem, actually, that started out as a poem. And I always knew I wanted a visual component to it. And I was like, well, I'm going to make this short film that and I'm going to make it part poetry and part narrative. And I told myself, though, I was like, I think this might be the thing. And I really have to do a good job. And I told myself that when I made that film, that was going to be my calling card. So people say, what are you trying to do? I'd be like this. Like, I want to I want to be a filmmaker. I want to be a poet. Like, I want to be all these things. And so once that short film um, premiered, that short film was what got me representation, which is an agent. Um, and But it wasn't like overnight, everything just changed because that film, that funding 
they gave all the filmmakers a stipend um, for doing the work. And I put that money away and I saved it. I did a lot of number crunching. And I was like, if I don't change my lifestyle and I don't do anything crazy, I can live off of this money for six months. And it wasn't a lot of money, but I was just like, I was really good with balancing it. And so I told myself, I'm going to quit my corporate job and I'm going to spend the six, next six months filling in the gaps that I have as a storyteller. And so in those six months, well, actually you'll love this because you like the poetry stuff. Um, the reason I actually quit my corporate job was to do that. But also I got this call from a dance company in the Bay area and they were like, Hey, are you interested in coming to write poems for us while we dance for three weeks and we'll pay you? And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds amazing. But I had this corporate job and my vacation time was up. And so my boss had called me that day and she's like, Hey, just touching base. Everything's amazing. And that day I was like, Hey, I actually, I have to quit. It was totally out of nowhere. I was like, I'll give you two months notice. I was like, but I got to go. And she was like, what? I was like, I just got to, I got to go. I got to go try some things I want to do. And thank you. It's not anything with you guys. I just have to go. So I actually, my first three weeks of being unemployed, I went into the barrier. I wrote poems for a ballet company for like a dance company for three weeks. And it was the best. And that kind of was like reaffirming of, okay, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, but this feels so much better than what I was trying to talk myself into. And so the practical part of the, the career change is that I spent six months unemployed I was going crazy because I'm a very productive person and very busy. And when I didn't have a schedule for the first time in my life and I didn't have somewhere to be and I didn't have like, like purpose, I, I was sort of just like, I'm kind of depressed. <laughs> like, what do I do? Like weeks on end, it's like, I, I tried to make schedules for myself. I tried to, um, you know, read a lot, but ultimately what I ended up doing that six months is I invested in myself. And I thought that if I was able to teach, because my, my job with the beauty care company was as an educator. And I thought to myself, I've been educating thousands of women for the last six years on shampoo and skincare and customer service and business acumen. I was like, I, if I turn that energy back on myself, what would happen in six months? And so I read every book I could, every masterclass I could. I also enrolled in UCLA extension classes, which are, uh, UCLA has like another school where you can take sort of, um, adults can take classes of all kinds and they have like a good entertainment program in that. So I signed up for these classes that were kind of like, that I put on a credit card and I was like, I think if I do them, I can pay that back someday. <laughs> so it was a lot of taking chances, you know, it was a lot, but it also was being very active in the change. I wasn't just, I didn't just quit and say, okay, come to me opportunity. I was like, no, I have to make the opportunity. I have to make the opportunity. I have to meet the opportunity. And when it comes to me, I have to be ready to do it good, to do it well. So I took screenwriting classes. I took directing classes. I took acting classes and I wrote um, writing samples. And so even though you have representation, if you don't have samples or you don't, can't do the thing when you're given the opportunity, you won't keep working. And I wanted to be a person that when I was given the opportunity, I had done the work. And so uh, four months later, I was staffed on my first uh, television show, which is Resident Alien, which is on sci-fi. And it's a comedy, it's hour long comedy. It's hilarious. And I had the best showrunner. And, um, you know, I've, I've been working since then, but that was sort of like the practical way of getting to it. Um, and it was hard because it did take a lot of um, initiative, self-initiative. To, to, to be honest with myself and to say, 
okay, you're a storyteller, but what are your gaps? Like, what are you, cause talent's not enough, right? Like you have to have, you have to fill in some blanks. And so, yeah, that's, um, that's the practical way it happened. Oh man. When I tell you I'm over here, like story of my life, <laughs> right? Cause I'm like, <laughs> sorry I'm being goofy but I'm just like listening to you and I'm just like I have so many people in my ear right now who are like I mean you need your own place you need to move we could talk about it off the podcast but I'm just saying like I'm struggling because I'm like I know what I want to do and I'm doing it and like I'm not completely dying of financial burden you know what I'm saying I'm doing other things to fuel myself and it's just really hard to hear people say well, maybe, you know, just sign yourself up for it for three years and you can just have an end goal and know, and I'm like, I just don't thrive in that. I just don't. And so it's just, it's hard to stay true to myself because I just feel like I have so many people who I trust yeah, giving wisdom and advice. And I just, I'm like, I don't really, I don't really trust their ideas for me either. And maybe you all listening in can identify with what I'm saying. It's like, I don't necessarily trust their ideas you know, in their pathway and what they say it should be either. But I also get them saying like, you got to be able to take care of yourself. You got to, you know, and I think that's valid. But I'm also like, I'm doing so well at this over here too. Like, and I'm not talking about like just working on my projects in my house, but like I get paid to do what I'm doing with you right now as well. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to stay creative and make money as best as I can. It's It's just hard hard to people say, that that's not enough or like, yeah, you got these goals, but you'll never get to these girls goals unless you go to yeah. corporate. And I'm just like, you're the only really one that knows, you know, would you say I said, we're the, you, we we're the only ones that know, because at the end of the day, it's, it's you and me. And, you know, those of you listening that if you decide it's you that has to do the work. So it doesn't matter what other people think is best for you while they're well-intended um some sometimes you just have a little a different little you're just built a little different inside with a different little spark and a lot of people and that was that was why you know I I didn't I did not I was 31 when I made this career change and it was because I did listen to a lot of people I respected because I they want they care for me and they know better and they you know they have wisdom and um I think that had I not listened to people for so long, I might've started all of this a lot younger, but I can't take it back. Cause I did get a lot of experience on the way, but no, I, I hear that. And, and it's hard. I mean, for a long time, when I was working corporate, I carried around two laptops. There was my corporate laptop and there was my creative laptop. And I was like, I must always have both. Yeah. I do think there might be a season that I have to tap into that. I don't know. I'm still thinking about it, but I totally get what you're saying I'm like you I don't want to look up at 80 years old and be like I didn't go for it or I didn't try and I'm scared to get trapped in the machine too so I'm like no I don't want to even sign up for it because I might never get out of it because I'll get super content with the money so it is just really hard but I agree with you when you say some of us are just built differently and like if you're gonna do it you kind of have to do it without everybody agreeing that it's the right path for you you know and we we all have decisions to make and speaking of decisions I wanted to talk a little bit more about um has anybody ever discouraged you in your capabilities as a writer and director um how did you overcome that discouragement oh yeah okay um 
many times. Uh, the mo most of them being being rejected from things. So I, you know, I applied for an MFA poetry program, got rejected, and I was like, "What? Like that's my that's my jam? Like what? Like that's what I'm best at." That that really knocked me off actually from writing for a while, and I. Um, had a really hard time with that because I, as I was thinking like, oh, I'm a writer, I'm creative. I, I, I need to like answer this calling while I'm working this corporate career. It was like confirmation that like, no, you're not a writer. And I really did shy away from it for a while. I was like, man, like, I guess I'm not. Um, that was one of them getting rejected from, um, you know, writing programs, directing programs, you know, uh, different, um, you know, nonprofits or organizations that are about, you know, bringing new filmmakers up and getting rejected from those sorts of opportunities, um, getting rejected from film festivals. Um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of things, um, where you think you're applying for something or you're, you know, it's about bringing those, uh, those people, you know, up. And then you're like, well, I'm not one of those you chose to bring up like that. That's hard. And so I, I got discouraged, um, from those things, but, but also, the way that I overcame it is every time I was rejected from something, I didn't, you know, initially you always feel sad. That's not like, initially you're like, oh man, I'm going to suck at this. Like, I'm not, I'm not good. But, but the second that feeling goes away, I think the way that I've been able to overcome is, um, is to look at those no's, to like pick them up like they're an object and to say, okay, why was I told no? Not the emotional reason, not because I don't think people like me, but like, what was my work missing? Or what was, what could I do better? And so, you know, I looked at all of those. I looked at my, my MFA application. I looked at the, the, the applications I was submitting to, to these programs. I was looking at my films critically. I was looking at those things and just saying, okay, like um, I wasn't chosen for a reason. And it's not because people don't like me. It's because I'm missing something. And, and, and the thing, the exciting thing to me about figuring out you're missing something is now there's something to fill it with. Like, and that excites me. I'm like, okay, well now I just need to learn how to be a better screenwriter. I need to learn how to be a better director. I need to learn how to communicate more clearly. I need to be better at my applications. And so I think that's, those things also are what helped me go on that journey of filling in the gaps. And I feel like that even now, like anytime um, I'm not chosen for a writer's room or I didn't get a directing opportunity or, you know, whatever things are happening, even in my professional career, I always look at that. I'm just like, okay, what do I need to learn uh, to do? What's a new skill set that I, I need to have? And, you know, like as, um, you know, as a director now, I still take those UCL extension classes. I'll take acting for the camera. I'll take directing actors to the camera. Like, there's always something more to learn. And so I actually think that being told no or feeling discouraged sometimes can be, be a seed if you're willing to look at what could grow out of it, you know? Definitely. I think um, in order to, yeah, you just have to go through those feelings and feel that in order to understand what perseverance is like and what it means what? to push. If we always got yes, if we ever got a no, we would freak out. I mean, it would just be like the worst experience. Yeah. And then you wouldn't get better because you just think you're the best. Yeah. And that's never good. <laughs> never. I mean, it's good to believe in yourself, but you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're running low on time. So I do want to ask you one other question, um, because Art of Me is a nonprofit that focuses on the BIPOC experience through film. 
I wanted to know from you, do you do you feel you have to navigate media and film, which is usually a very predominantly white space, um, differently as an indigenous woman? And in what ways have you had that experience? Yeah, um, I think as an indigenous woman, I feel um, probably a lot more responsibility than white people do when they make things. You know, I feel like I have a responsibility to portray our community accurately. Um, and in those spaces, when I'm working with white, white creators, even if they are well-intended and they're great people, there's a lot of education that I have to do, like preliminary education I have to do to teach them that we still exist, to teach them that we're still here. It's like Indian 101 or like indigenous 101 that I have to teach. And I don't think other, I don't, I don't think like white people have to do that. Like everybody knows their history. Everybody knows what they do. All of our media has been shaped by them. And so it is a bit of a different navigation because you also are looking at, well, who do I wanna work with? Who will respect me as a woman? Who will respect me as an indigenous person who actually cares about us as full people and not fulfilling a trope or a stereotype. And so I think I just navigate differently because I, I have a lot of, I take a lot of responsibility in the things I'm a part of. And also I know that if it's a non-indigenous uh, space, I have to, no, I'm signing up to be an educator also, which is why things like res dogs are a dream because the room is all native, the directors are all native, the cast is all native. And that, so funny, you know, we walked onto a set. I was like, man, is this how white people feel? Like, it's just all, it's like the only them on set. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. No, that's hilarious. Is this how white people feel? And I, you know what? I am so excited for everything you all are doing with reservation dogs. I mean, when I tell you like, cause even as a black woman, I have representation on TV and I always say you don't get to see much native representation. I love that even the Asian American people are, they're moving into film. Like it's really exciting to see people who you don't normally see get a voice like I just get so excited you know what I mean it's so exciting because I feel like we have been so misinterpreted where we've been seen as these very sort of one um dimensional sort of stoic serious people and the truth is we're hilarious like we are some of the funniest people and if you go to any native person's home or event doesn't matter if it's a funeral or a wedding you're just going to hear laughing constantly so I'm excited that the world finally gets to see our joy and you know what something that I say in the African-American community we feel we're very funny as well um and, but it comes from a place of pain and struggle and mm -hmm. so people who normally have that background just like natives do we tend yeah. to be hilarious because oh, yeah. you gotta laugh it's how you survive all of this and comedy is rooted in tragedy so who better to be comedians <laughs> yeah I, I i agree and you know like i said i'm really excited for the show because it just it forces us all to be educated it forces us all to tap in and natives don't have to be in these small spaces where we never see you all we never get to engage we never get to see the cool parts of who you are because yeah. I'm so tired of that so I'm just really I can't be more mad than you but I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like really excited to see it grow over time we also had Leah Hale on 
um, the podcast recently and she was telling me about the projects that she's doing. She's doing a documentary um, about um, Native women and like sex trafficking and the history. Wow. Of Sorry, y'all, it got real heavy, but y'all should tap in if you don't know what's going on <laughs> about that um, with Native women. And it was just like, I'm like, yes, like we need to know and we need to see and it's just not fair. And I'm glad that <clears throat> I'm glad that you all are breaking through and I hope to see you break through more, but we have to realize that breaking through means that we all have to assist you all in that, which means tuning into Reservation Dogs, listening into uh, Indigenous stories, books, films, movies, yeah. like we have to tap in. And so, I mean, obviously I'm not gonna, you know, speak for that community myself or even fully, and I don't even expect you to speak for the community, but before we go, can you tell me what your idea of those outside of the community, how can we, how can we assist? Like, how can we be great allies? Yeah, um, I think a lot of the things that you just said, you know, it's, um, I think if, um, it, like, it, like, I guess it, it would be to engage with us. And by that, that could be watch our films, watch our te television shows, um, read our books, like, uh, like take an act, take the initiative to fill that gap, right? Like take the initiative to, to seek something out and to learn. And I think one place everybody can start that's very simple is I think everyone listening probably has the internet. Um, you know, you can even just Google your city and what tribe is there and whose tribal nation and territory that is. And that's always a nice place. I feel like to start locally with realizing that we're not so far away from you and that there's no place in this country that native people don't live and don't have land and don't have nations. Um, and I think that's always a good way to really um, connect with us is just learn whose land, land that, that, that you're, you're on right now. Um, and then, you know, from there, I think that starts to spark a lot of interest. And I think it's just, you know, read, listen, we have, we, I mean, there's native musicians of all kinds. We have native rappers, we have native folk singers, we have like documentary filmmakers, we have television writers, like we're doing all the same things that everybody else is doing. It just, I think, takes some initiative for, um, for non-native folks to engage with it. So I would say, just engage with us at whatever level and access you have, and then share and tell your friends. And, and I think that's a really easy, doable way to be a good ally for us. Yeah, I mean, I feel so dumb because I never even thought to like Google what tribes are near me in Ohio. So I'm going to check that out. Definitely. I've always, I don't know, like you said, mentioned like, like further out in Arizona. And all, I've, I think my mind has always been like, oh, you know, I'm not close enough, but maybe just maybe I am. I probably have to be um, because they're everywhere. Yeah, they're everywhere. It's just like you said, media has created, made us pigeonhole into this image that they're not, that you all are not, but you all are everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I and and now you're on our TV, so I'm excited. <laughs> that. And, and everyone listening, visionmakermedia.com, I believe, is a good place to start to watch um, um, some native films. They have like historical films, animation. Like you can tap in. You do have to pay, but run them their money, run them their check. They're working hard to um, create movies and films that we can be educated by and that we can just connect with. And then if you want to keep up with Tazba, follow her on Instagram at T-A-Z-B-A-H. So her first name, Tazba. And then hit up her website at www.tazbahtazba.com. And then did you have anything else that you wanted to plug? Because 
I would love for you, any projects you're working on that you want us to know about? Um, another show you could watch that I write on is called Rutherford Falls. And that's on the Peacock streaming platform. And we just finished shooting season two of that today. But season one is out. And actually, Rutherford Falls is great because I feel like it gives a lot of um, foundational information about Native people. And it's a comedy. So it's a comedy. It also stars Ed Helms. And then it has Janice Meeting, who is a Lakota actress, and Michael Gray Eyes, who is a First Nations man from Canada. And it's very funny, but you also learn a lot about Native law and policy. Um, and then season two is even more hilarious. But that's another one that you could check out. And yeah, we start shooting Reservation Dog season two in about in a couple months. So look forward to that in the summer. But yeah, lots of lots of things coming out. Um, and yeah, just just watch those watch Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls. And I feel like you'll be caught up on Native people a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Thank you so much, Tazwa. I really am yeah. appreciated that you made time in your schedule to just be here. And this has been so fun. And as usual, I always say this, I wish it could be longer because I feel like there's so much more we could be yes. talking about and um those of you who are listening in don't forget to tune in on our next episode and speaking of social media you can follow us on twitter and on instagram at art of me org our facebook is art of me productions our youtube is art of me productions and then our website is www.artofme.org so definitely go on and check out our content this podcast episode will be available there and on youtube and don't forget to watch Tazla's resume dogs that she's writing on and then she's writing on Rutherford Falls please tap in and be a part of the movement because it's changing and it's happening it's so exciting but I'm gonna calm down because I will see you all on the next episode thanks for tuning in Bye. Bye.